You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week, we hope. We've got a couple of guests this week, so let's go to the first one right away. He's the current and winning as head coach at Austin Lake Travis High. Multiple state titles, both as a head coach and as his former position defensive coordinator. Coach Hank Carter, welcome to Pros Like Us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me on. That's great. Great to have you on with us. Right off the top, uh, social media has become a phenomenon, right? You've got high school kids. It's like a, another appendage to them. Uh, what's been the impact on your coaching or how you handle your players? Well, I've noticed that the kids, um, because of the rise of social media, that's really how, how they communicate. It's funny. We have a, a group text with a position group, and the kids will say that's the only time they ever text anyone is if they're texting us, the coaches, or if they text their parents. And the, typically the way they would interact with folks would be through TikTok or some other form of social media. But um, it really hasn't changed how we operate. It changes how my kids see themselves, though. And um, I'm not a real big fan of, of most of the effect that social media has had on our athletes. I do think there's a tremendous positive effect that it can have, certainly for schools that are more obscure or that are not typically on the Division One coach's radar um, that might need to spread the word about some of the players and recruiting and some of the great things their kids are doing. So I, I love all the parts about it where we get to highlight what our students are doing um, and what our programs do. What I don't love about it is that kids start getting the feeling that everything they see on social media is real and that if they're not getting love on social media, then they're not going to be loved by a college. Or if they are getting loved on social media, then that means they are getting loved by a college. And just trying to get them to and, – and really parents too. Parents are – in the same boat with the kids i get a lot of parents that say well hey we need to get this going because he hasn't had as many social media impressions and i'm like that's not how this works and um i think it's a little bit of fool's gold too and i try to, to use that analogy with the kids just letting them know that, that you know there's no substitute for hard work and production and if, if you're playing great ball and you're making uh, great grades and you're a great kid things are going to work out for you and no amount of marketing and social media hoopla is going to to change whether or not you're successful in football or any other sport and those are just things that we navigate. It's more of a headache for us, to be honest with you, than it is a benefit, in my opinion. Right. And those, you know, those tried and true things that you mentioned, are, are, I don't think those will ever change. So currently you're sitting, your team this year, sitting at 6-1, and 4-0 in the district. But it seems like you have a great record every year, right? I mean, I don't know that you've lost more than three games in a season. What has this year's version of the Cavaliers shown you so far? Uh, man, I think we have a lot of potential. I, I love the way that our team is made up. Um, the kids really enjoy being around one another. You know, some teams are closer than others, but these kids really do seem like they love each other and love being around the coaches. So, you know, really, I've just charged our staff with, let's don't screw it up. Let's do everything that we can to get these kids playing to their potential. But I, I think that we have a lot of the components that would give you a chance to be highly successful. You know, one of the things that was a little bit, or not a little bit, a major concern was us for us was kicking game early in the year. New punter, new kickers. Uh, but those guys have really stepped it up. I think our long, long snapping has improved. Those are all areas that we graduated really great players. Um, you know, we've got our quarterback back, and then really our offensive line, the skilled players, the backs, um, everybody on offense has, has shown potential to be really, really special if we can get everybody clicking at the same time. I think defensively, we had some hiccups with our secondary early in fall, but that's come along great. We're getting uh, we're getting a few guys back also at the linebacker position that makes us better. So 
we've got a chance. You know, um, a lot of good things have to happen um, in order for us to make a deep run. But I, I do think that our kids have the right mindset, and I think we have a lot of talented players, and we're excited about the possibilities. Coach, who are some of those up-and-coming star players on, on this year's team? Uh, you know, offensively, our, our quarterback, Bo Edmondson, he, uh, he's a junior, and, and he really is a leader for our football team. Isaac Norris is kind of, you know, we call him the human Swiss Army knife. He plays tight end receiver, some quarterbacks, some running back, a kick return, putt return, you name it. Uh, Caleb Burton is an Ohio State commit that uh, plays receiver for us that is just a wildly talented young man. Trinette Estes, another uh, receiver. Derek Johnson, who um, I would say is probably our most valuable player at this point because He's playing both sides of the ball and special teams. As uh, plays running back for us, also plays linebacker. He's got touchdowns on both sides of the ball. Makes an impact on special teams. So those, those are the skill players that have really had the most impact, the biggest impact so far. Nico Hamilton is a sophomore running back that's done well for us. And then defensively, Max Lenhoff, a, a returning starter defensive end. I mentioned Derek Johnson plays linebacker and has had a big year so far. Jacob Glover, returning starter at corner. Um, Jaden Wynn, Trey Dorsett, those are all guys that are playing up front for us on the defensive line that are good players for us and have had a successful um, year so far. But we've got a lot of great kids. I'd have to name them all. Um, but a lot of great kids that are doing some really good things, and we just hope to keep improving. So you mentioned your quarterback, Bo Edmondson. He's a junior. How does he compare to those past quarterbacks that you've had? I get asked that a lot. So I would say uh, Bo's story isn't fully written yet. Him, you know, he's hopefully not even halfway through um, his junior season. Um, but he, he's a little bit different than all of them, I would say. He's charismatic and vocal and outgoing, similar to how Baker was. Um, you know, Bo and Baker have a lot of similar mannerisms where, you know, Baker and, and Bo, both of them just very at ease, um, hamming it up with the grown-ups. You know, just very at ease, leading a group of kids in a little uh, impromptu football practice or also over there cutting it up. Uh, goofing off with the receivers or what have you. So just ch the charisma is very similar to Baker with Bo. I think his skill set is a mix between like Matthew Ballin and a uh, kid that went to Ohio State Forest and in TCU and then uh, Nate Yarnell, kid that's at Pitt. You know, he's a he's a pocket passer. He's not a runaround guy, but big, strong-armed kid and um, very, very intelligent. But, you know, he's he's still got a lot of ball to play. So um, I guess I'll, I'll tell him his ranking after, you know, as a, you know, on our Mount Rushmore after he's done playing for us. Well, it certainly looks like things are leading uh, towards the the Westlake game on November 5th. Uh, they're 7-0, 3-0 in the district. And for those listeners that aren't familiar with Texas football, I mean, Westlake alums are like Drew Brees, Nick Foles, Justin Tucker, just to name a few. But, Coach, how intense is that rivalry with Westlake? Yeah, that's, that's always a game that uh, the two communities get fired up for. Our kids grow up, you know, playing against those kids, and they, you know, friends with a lot of them. And and just the proximity and also just the similarities between our two, two communities. We play each other in middle schools, um, you know, and then, yeah, just the overall success of both programs. Westlake's been around a lot longer than us, and they've been at a high level for a lot longer than Lake Travis has. But uh, certainly it's, uh, it's a great rivalry. It's a fun game to be a part of. Um, you know, I think if you ask our players going back, you know, for many, many, many years, they would tell you that their most memorable games are often um, against Westlake if it's not at a state championship game. And, um you know, so it says a lot about how important it is to the kids. And, yeah, it makes it fun, right? So anything that uh, that gets everybody rallied and gets everybody fired up is a cool thing. How do you keep them from looking ahead to that game? Because, obviously, you've got a few to play in between. You want to, you know, keep pace. So how do you keep them from – and not just the kids, but the entire school, the fans, everybody. Yeah, well, there's. I don't even try to, uh, <laughs> to uh, get the fans. They're going to do what they do. From our standpoint is we just try to, to deal with what, what we can handle this week. And so we're just working on improving from what we did a week ago and preparing for Austin Bowie. You know, th those are the things that, 
than all we can control, and that's what we do. And so we don't we don't talk about games that are down the road. We get ready and talk about what we got to do to win this game. Also, just so the kids can see it and understand it, we just tell them, hey, if we take care of the things that we can control, then when those those other games come down the road and even in the playoffs, then uh, we ought to be fine. All right. So now just in general, Texas high school football. I mean, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, so we have kind of our version of things. Alex from, oh, yeah. uh, in California, that's a little bit different. But Texas high school football, Friday Night Lights. I mean, you've had a movie, a TV series. It just seems like an iconic part of just American folklore when it comes right down to it. But in your words, how would you describe just the essence of Friday Night Lights for you, the crowds, the size of the stadiums? I mean, what it means to the communities, all that. It is. And so I just think there's obviously a very prevalent and strong culture in Texas for high school sports in general, but certainly football. The nature of football being that it there are so many different student groups and so many parts of the school that are involved on a Friday night that makes it unique. Um, obviously it takes, you know, football teams are, they're larger, you know, basketball teams have 10 to 15 kids on it and baseball teams have, you know, 15 to 25 and soccer and volleyball, but a football team, you know, especially at a bigger school, it's got 75 players, you know, you've got another 15 or so coaches, you're going to have 200 to 800 members in your band that are at that. You're going to have a hundred or so dance members. You're going to have 30 or so cheer members. You're going to have a dozen managers. You're going to have, you know, maybe 15 to 20 student trainers. And so all of those grew together. I mean, that's just a, the, the amount of sure kids involved in a football game and everybody that, that works together to get all the pieces in place, that's a huge part of your student body. And so I think that it's really easy for everybody in the school to get fired up to go to a football game because I, I get a chance to watch somebody that's doing a part of our flag or color guard. I get an opportunity to watch kids that are part of our student you know, sports medicine program, the band, the football players, our freshmen that are out there running flags. It's just, it really is um, a community event. That's not just in Lake Travis. That's across our state. And so I also think the fact that the UIL and, and public high schools have made a point of emphasis to keep sports in schools. And we have dedicated staff. You have to be a full-time teacher to be a coach in our schools. And there's a dedicated athletic period. All those things together really make the recipe for something to be a really big deal in most Texas communities. And, um, you know, we've, we've sold out the home side of our stadium every week. Last week, not only did we sell out our home side, we sold another thousand on our visitor side, and then we still had kids jumping the fence and trying to break in to get into the game. And that was again, it wasn't a close one. It was a 52 to you know 14 blowout. So I mean, it, it's a big deal in our school. We're not the only ones that have it like that, but it, you know, it's certainly a fun thing to be a part of. With your arrival, we read somewhere that the town has grown around the school. I mean, new restaurants, stores being opened. Yeah. Tell us about the positive impact that the football program has had on the community. Yeah, so uh, when we came here, Lake Travis had around 1,700 students in high school. They were, um, you know, back then we called it 4A. It would be a 5A program now, which was similar to the school that we were coming from. Came here with Coach Chad Morris, who's now, you know, he bounced around, right? He was the head coach at SMU, the head coach at Arkansas, offense coordinator at Tulsa and Clemson. Now he's the head coach at Allen. So, Chad, I grew up playing for Coach Morris. I coached for him for 10 years. He and I came here from Stephenville another uh, very storied program that was a really cool place to coach. But one of the things that, that drew us to this place was just the opportunity for it to grow and, and you just continue to have families moving into this area. They would have similar belief systems. They wanted their kids to make great grades. They wanted to be really good in the band or the or dance team or choir or football or tennis, whatever it was. We wanted to be a part of a community like that. Flash forward 14 years and we've got 3,700 students in the high school. I can remember when Chad and I first came here, we came in the middle of February, 2008. When you 
you're coming in and you're you're taking over a program and you're I mean you're really you work from six in the morning until ten at night and I can remember there really wasn't anywhere to sit down and have dinner after about eight o'clock or eight thirty in the Lakeway area back then. Um, there was one catfish place that if you got there before eight thirty you could sit down and have a meal. But other than that, there would be a McDonald's and Whataburger and Taco Bell. That was about it. Fast forward fourteen years or whatever, and we were just covered up with restaurants and and all these things. It's changed a lot. The uh, the way that the kids are really hasn't changed a whole lot though. I mean they they still come to school wanting to do well. They want to be a part of a great program. They have very high standards in their own households. And so for us to have high standards on them really is not a big change. And it's a fun place to work, and it's a fun school system to be a part of. What influence has Chad Morris had on, on you and your coaching career? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've always said this. You know, I'm, I'm a combination of my dad, Henry Carter, who passed away three years ago, and Coach Morris. And, uh, you know, I got into coaching because I watched my dad do it as a kid. I watched really the relationships that he had with the kids and the players. I felt like I had, um, you know, 50 older brothers every year, um, either being out there on the football field, watching him coach and jacking around on the sideline, probably being a nuisance or even at a tennis tournament or at a track meet and just, just watching the fact that he got to go to work every day, work with kids and how they, how they viewed him. I just really loved my dad. That was a cool thing. And then Coach Morris moved into the school that I grew up with, Eustis High School in East Texas, when I was a junior. And I uh, played the quarterback position, and he was a quarterback's coach, and he was young, right out of college. And uh, in a lot of ways, he valued the relationships with kids and everything, just like my dad. But he was also a guy that really was looking to climb the ladder professionally. And so I feel like I'm, I'm a mix of those, of those two guys, and I'm fortunate to have been influenced by both of them. But certainly, Coach Morris has had as, as big an impact as anybody on, on who I am as a person. And, um, you know, people – been asked this before hey you know what's it take and I got very very lucky I've been lucky in a lot of ways but probably mostly because of the influences and the people that I've been been around and been able to learn from and certainly coach Morris and my dad would be the two if I had to pick two that's who I pick. So coach you were the uh, defensive coordinator before you got the head coaching job and it sounds like obviously you played quarterback spent a lot of time with Chad Morris who's a very innovative offensive coach not just at the high school level but also at the college level how much do you get into the offense anymore I, I don't call offensive plays um what I do is like whenever we get ready to either hire an offensive coordinator or we make staff decisions there's just really some things that I want to see us do because I, I believe in them I, I want us to be able to throw the football we have been blessed with just great players here that can throw it and catch the football so I, I believe in that I believe in um being able to play multiple tempos. I, I really want us to be able to, if we have a quarterback that can run, to be able to use his feet. And so there's really just a couple of, uh, or a few criteria that I, that I want our offense to run. You know, I want our offense coordinator, Tommy Mangino, that's in his second year as our OC, has the same belief system as me. And so it was easy. I, and so basically I plug him in and turn him loose. I'm not an offensive guy. I tried that my first four years and it drove me crazy. And I don't think it was a very good offensive coach. So I switched to defense, got where I belonged and and really, I mean, I call the situations. I don't call any plays. Coach Mangino and the offensive guys handle that. And uh, I just try to stay out of their way for the most part. So it sounds like you got a pretty specific philosophy. Do the schemes change much from year to year? Uh, yeah, the schemes will change based on, um, you know, the body types and attributes and, and talents of the kids that are in the program. We think it's great to be able to use a tight end or two, but you have to have some bigger bodies and some kids that are rowdy um, if you're going to do that. So right now we, we do. Some years we don't, um, and in some years, you know, we have several of them. So our personnel groupings can be different based on the kids that we have. But, you know, for the most part, we, we want to be able to take the attributes and the talents of the kids that, that are, you know, that are going to make up this team and just try to, to use them to reach your fullest potential. And um, Coach Mangino and our offensive guys do an awesome job of that, and I'm, I'm very proud of them. 
So just kind of a, another general question. What would have been, I guess, the most satisfying or some of the more satisfying situations that you've experienced so far in your career? Well, I guess when we first got here and I was defense coordinator, that first year that we were able to win a state championship when they had won it the year before us, that was like a huge relief. It was like, okay, thank goodness we didn't, uh, you know, we, we were taking over driving the bus and we didn't run in the ditch. And so that was one. And then I would kind of say the same thing in 2010 when I took over as head coach. It's that, all right, we've been able to continue this success. And, you know, that was a kind of a monkey off my back. Uh, I would say in 2011 when, you know, we – won the fifth state championship in a row, something that's never been done in Texas high school football. That was, that was a huge deal. Anytime you're able to, to make history in Texas high school football, you've done something. It's, that was just so cool for our team and staff and community and school just to, to be able to do that. And then, you know, when we won it in 16 division one, you know, we, we've moved up four classifications since I've been in Lake Travis gone from, from small school four a and now we're big school six a and just to be able to win the, the biggest game, you know, on, on the biggest stage, that, that was really gratifying. Um, but, you know, we've gotten close again a couple times since then, just haven't been able to do it, you know, but we're ready to go back. I've, there's nothing like winning a state championship, but really sometimes this is not in the cards, you know. Sometimes you have injuries or you run into a buzzsaw. I mean, I don't – I guess it was 17 first time we played North Shore. Golly, I mean, that team was unbelievable. Um, you know, most of the time if we lose a game, we can go back and pinpoint three or four plays, and if we'd have done things differently, we'd have won. And, uh, no, that wasn't that way against North Shore. So a lot of things have to go your way, but – I've been proud of what we've accomplished since I've been here, but it's it's a fun program to be a part of. And, and again, we've, we've got a chance to be pretty special this year if things can go our way. I'm guessing there have probably been some inquiries from the next level. What do you think it would take for you to seriously consider a college job? That had been something that I kind of felt like was on my bucket list earlier in my career. I almost went with Coach Morris on a number of occasions. That was about as good as opportunity I could think of. Um, I've had some other opportunities and spoken to, to some guys at the next level about doing that. Um, but to be honest, I feel like, yeah, you know, the, the uh, side of me that is really influenced by my dad, and it's I've got an opportunity here to coach high school kids, which is really what I think my calling is. I'm also not going to lie to you that I get to watch – most of my kids' games, I've down and I miss one, but I get to watch my kids play. I get to watch my kids grow up, and I'm not out there on the road recruiting, and that's uh, not something that I would look forward to. There's, I feel like I'm a dad, number one, and a husband, number two, and a, you know, a coach, number three, and I wanted to make sure that I could do that. And, and so fortunately, they've, they've uh, wanted to keep me around here at Lake Travis, and Stacy and I love it, and we've raised our family here, and we want to stay here. So I don't know that right now where I'm at in my career, my kids, the age that they are, that I don't know that I'm wanting to do that. But, you know, perhaps when I, you know, down the road a little bit, that might be something that I want to pursue. But I really love coaching high school kids. It's just, uh, they're to me, they're at just the perfect age that we can have just the, uh, just the right amount of influence on them. And, um, you know, I feel like that's really what I'm cut out to do. All right. We mentioned some of the, uh, the Westlake alums. Obviously, Lake Travis has had its own and, I don't have a comprehensive list, but, you know, you've had guys like Garrett Gilbert, who's played in the league, Charlie Brewer's playing uh, at Utah, and I believe he started out at, was he first at Baylor? Yeah, Charlie was at Baylor and then transferred this past year. Baker's in the NFL. We got Garrett Gilbert. We got Hudson Card. Yeah, Hudson Card. Yeah, Hudson Card at Texas. We've got Nate Yarnell that's at Pitt. So we've got a, a little Twitter account called Next Level Cavs. I want to say we've got 35 kids playing college or professional football this fall. It's just an awesome thing, and it's just so cool to watch those guys go up there and represent the schools that they're at now but still still know that they're uh, Cavaliers at heart. That's a really cool thing. 
And I don't want to like leave the other guys out, but I got to ask you about Baker Mayfield. What were some of the traits yeah. you saw uh, that gave you an idea he could be very successful moving forward? Uh, the first thing that I noticed was he was he's just a leader, and again, I would just say charismatic. The first time I ever saw him, I've told the story probably a hundred times. He was out throwing the ball in our indoor facility, and I think that he was an eighth grader, going to be ninth grader. And um, he was a little bitty, and all he was out there playing with older kids, it looked like. But they were actually the kids that are in his grade. He was just kind of throwing the football with his 18 teammates. But he was just like a little field general or like a, you know, kind of like a cow dog that uh, you got this little dog that's just running these bulls and just getting them to do exactly what he wanted them to do. That's just what Baker reminded me of. And uh, eventually his uh, physical talents caught up with his, uh, you know, his leadership and his beliefs and, just, you know, his confidence. And, uh, you know, now, back when he was in high school, would never dreamed he'd had the success that he's had. But once he went to OU and he basically said, yeah, I know that they've got a quarterback in place there, but I'm pretty sure I can beat him out. Uh, since then, I've never doubted him. So, I, you know, I'm not surprised anymore. I used to be, but I'm not surprised anymore when I see him do great things. He's just an unbelievable young man. And um, obviously, we're super proud of him. Did he have the acting skills back then? Sounds like he had, you know, you said charismatic, charismatic but the, telling you those progressive commercials, uh, he's got another career coming. He always was ready to be in the limelight, but not in a cocky way. You know, I think a lot of people get the wrong impression of him because of the type of competitor he is. One of the things I compare him to Bo at, like if there were little kids hanging around after a game, Baker would go over there and he'd start the game with them. He'd be like, okay, split it up two on two. Here we go. He has always understood that he is a public figure, even though he was a high school kid and then a college player, now a pro player. But he's always really gotten that. He's never shied away from moments where he can make somebody else feel special or make somebody else feel included, do something really cool. You know, I've always told this story, too, that our band was playing in the state championships back um, on a Saturday after we had played a football game, and we wanted to do kind of a little send-off for the band. I want to say the band parents had talked to my football parents about, hey, the band always does such a great job of supporting the football boys. Is there anything the football boys might could do to show the band some love on their way loading up on the Yellow Dogs going to their contest? And I'll never forget, you know, most of the boys – it's like I had to arm wrestle to get them to go over there and, uh, you know, kind of clap for the band. But Baker jumped up there in front, um, started kind of leading the chants that we would normally do, like in our helmet tunnel, getting fired up. He started leading those chants for the band. And that was just a cool thing. And it made a big impact on the band parents and those band kids. But that's just the type of guy that he was. Um, and nobody told him to do it. He just did it on his own. And those are the things that I still think that he does to this day. It's just now he's the leader of a football team. and he uh, He's a talented guy, whether – whether it's on the football field or on his commercials. He does a great job. Why do you think Baker slipped through the cracks during recruiting? Well, a few things. I do think that it's back then guys were locking down their quarterback really early, and Texas had several other Division One quarterbacks at the time. And so I think that really a lot of them, by the time they really got to see Baker at his best, they already had their quarterback. And I think had they been able to go back in time, they would have offered him. But you got to understand, Baker was really physically pretty small. You know, he was probably as a junior 5'10", you know, and, you know, we won a state championship, and he started, did all that, and had a great year. But you're not going to get a lot of offers as a quarterback at 5'10", unless you're a super twitchy guy, which at that point he wasn't. And then once he got into senior year, he continued to grow and, you know, got over six foot, and he's the height and size that he is now, roughly. By then, when the college coaches came around recruiting, they most of them, that we're going to get a quarterback in his class already had one committed. And I can remember on multiple occasions them telling me how much better he got and how great he looked and how great he spun the ball. Um, and so I think that was some of it. But, you know, recruiting is not a, it's not a science. 
I don't think anybody other than probably, I don't know, Baker might even say he'd never dreamed that he'd be doing what he is now, but you never know what's inside of a person. If you don't check some of those boxes that recruiters are wanting you to, and Hyatt's one of them, um, that it's easy to get passed over. And I think that was a lot of it. But he also was very specific on the level of ball he wanted to play. He had he had scholarship opportunities. It just wasn't at the schools that he wanted to go play at. Um, and it wasn't at the level that he wanted to go play. He, he wanted to play Power 5 football, and he made that clear from the start, and that's what he did. How tough is it like for a young quarterback to step in and – and carry on that quarterback legacy at your school. How do you prepare them for what's to come? The way I look at it is, I think the kids and family see that coming, and in a way, they uh, they kind of sh- they sift themselves out. Um, the ones that are all about it know what they're getting into, and they typically come in and do well. The ones that don't like that won't end up playing quarterback like Travis anyway, and they eventually find them- themselves going and play receiver or DB or you know something else. But you know, at, at the end of the day, they. They see a bunch of great players that came before them. And, um, you know, I, I don't think they feel a lot of pressure. I think that they are excited and, and understand that they've got a, uh, a a really cool opportunity to follow in the footsteps of some great players. And I think most of them feel like it's a responsibility to kind of pass the torch. I, I feel like it's a positive thing. But I don't know. I bet it's pretty stressful, too, for the mamas and daddies uh, when their kids are coming up playing quarterback here. Coach, so you mentioned you stay off social media. You don't like it. But – Give our listeners your Twitter handle. It's at Coach Hank Carter. I try to keep it simple. I'm, I'm the athletic director here at Lake Travis. And uh, so the, the things that I get on Twitter about are just promoting the great things that our students do. I'm good with all that. It's just all these other, the nonsense and the videos and things that kids put out thinking it's going to help them and it just doesn't. And then, But that's, that's part of it. It just gives me more opportunity to try to help educate and help teach these young folks and do the best I can. So who is the next opponent for Lake Travis on Friday? We play Austin Bowie, which is a great opponent. They're a really good team, one of the best teams in the Austin area every year, so it's going to be a big challenge. All right, Coach, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it, man. Good luck the rest of the season. You bet. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to Coach Carter and his Lake Travis Cavaliers. Great insights there into just Texas football in general. Baker Mayfield and his team this year wish them all the best. This past week, the Dallas Cowboys again are showing that uh, this isn't the same Cowboys that we saw early last year, right? And I know, uh, Alex, you had some things that you wanted to share about these Dallas Cowboys, so let's get to it. The stat that I saw that kind of interested me the Cowboys are the first road team in the NFL history to have 115 penalty yards they converted less than 25 percent of their third down attempts against the Patriots they allowed four touchdowns on defense and they still won the game I thought that was a pretty interesting stat because we've never had that so digging deep into the stats and I I just thought that was really impressive plus going into overtime Looking like the Patriots might get the best of the Cowboys because they weren't they weren't playing that well. They didn't convert like a third and short. They went on like fourth and one on their own 35. They didn't get that with Zeke. So it just the game didn't start off on the right foot for the Cowboys and you knew it was going to be a struggle. And I'm surprised that McCarthy went for that fourth down knowing that he's playing against Bill Belichick. So like punt the ball, you know, you've got a long game ahead. But I'm glad that the Cowboys pulled it out in overtime. Dak Prescott is playing really well. I think, you know, I've praised him in the previous weeks. I've said how I've moved him up in my quarterback rankings. He found C.D. Lamb. Lamb had a fantastic game. 
I mean, the guy is really turning it up a notch and, and becoming that number one wide receiver, and I believe that he's already surpassed Amari Cooper. He's become a much better route runner. And Trayvon Diggs, low. He's got to be the favorite for Defensive Player of the Year. He's got seven INTs on this season already, considering that we've played only, what, six games so far? He scored another pick six on it. That was kind of the turning point because it looked like the Patriots were going to seal the game, and all of a sudden Diggs comes out of nowhere and just returns it for a pick six, and that's it. I mean, the, the Cowboys are back in it. I realize that when it's all said and done... It's either Aaron Donald or Miles Garrett that are going to win the Defensive Player of the Year. But if I had a vote, it would be Trayvon Diggs, the the little brother of Stephon Diggs. He's playing ball, Lou. I mean, he's turning into one of the best corners in the league. Well, he's certainly a ball hawk, and the ball seems to find him. And obviously being a former receiver, tremendous hands, tremendous ball skills, couldn't they have just kicked the field goal in overtime? You know, New England covers the spread. They win the game, and Lou gets a winner. I, you know, it's just, you know, I don't ask for much. We'll talk about that in the pick segment. Dallas did what they had to do to win the game. The one thing that I, that, that I did notice, I think Mac Jones showed a lot of resiliency because after that pick, he comes right back and he fires the strike to Bourne to score, whatever, a 75-yard touchdown, which they don't. it doesn't seem like they really let him throw the ball downfield much or they're not calling those plays again I don't know I'm not a defensive coach but I guess it could be argued that perhaps Diggs bit on the first move looking to make another pick and got beat deep but it was probably more so the safety not being over the top on that one but but again that's just my layman's look at that particular play but just Dallas in general they're running the ball much better more complimentary football. Dak's numbers are similar to what they were before the injury last season, but these numbers are being put up in games that they are winning, and it's not these last-ditch efforts to try to come back where they're just throwing the ball on every single play and racking up stats. He's doing it winning. So efficiency, the ball placement, he's completely over the injury, you can tell. Now he did isn't a walking boot, a little bit of a calf injury, so they've got a bye this week. So I don't think there's going to be any issues there. They are certainly a team that is much further along than I expected. And again, it's the defense, and you got to give Dan Quinn some uh, some love here because I think he changed up the defense a little bit. It's not exactly what they ran in Seattle. Guys are buying in uh, when they get Demarcus Lawrence back. Certainly all the arrows are pointing up on the Cowboys. Another team that, that looked like they were really in a bad space. Uh, we talked about the Raiders and that whole situation last week, but they go into Denver they did what they had to do, and that game, the score, you know, made it look closer, but they really handled them well, and in such a tough week with all the commotion, players having to take some time off, throwing in a, the interim head coach, Rich Bisaccia, so you got to give those guys all the credit in the world, and yeah, there's some things that, that I'd like to say about Mike Mayock, but uh, what, what was your take on just their performance at, given the situation? Well, they needed to win. I mean, they really had a tumultuous week with, with John Gruden, and you just you wondered, would the team be up for it? It was a 
division game, a very important division game against the Denver Broncos, because if they lose, then the Broncos go ahead of them. And I thought they played well. I mean, what did they cover? I mean, it was like a 10-point win over the Broncos. That was really impressive. And Teddy Bridgewater threw like three picks in that game. I mean, it was a convincing win, and it looked like they just left it all out on the football field. And you're right. I mean, Mike Mayock has a lot to prove. Now he he has a lot more responsibility. He is the man in charge in terms of the personnel. Because before, I mean, let, let's be honest here, he was kind of second man in charge and Gruden was running the team. Now Mayock is going to be calling the shots and we're going to find out what he's made of. But his drafts have been a mixed bag so far, Lou, and it's unfortunate. And you and I have talked about it off the air. I mean, he's hit on some guys like later on, like on day three, the day three picks. But those early picks, I mean, they've been really, really, I would say, below average. Well, when they say, or Mark Davis says, well, you know, Gruden will have 51% of the say and Mayock will have 49% of the say, basically that's telling me that Gruden had 100% of the say because what difference does it make with 51 or 49? Majority rules, he overrides things. Even from the first draft where it seemed like they were just going to draft all Clemson players, I have to question whether Cleland Farrell really was Mike Mayock's guy. You know, watching him on the NFL Network on draft coverage year after year and preaching about uh, value and at the top of the draft, special players, generation... God, I hate using that term. Make me stop, Alex. Don't let me say generational. I'm, I'm sick of that. Anyway, <laughs> you want a superstar, somebody that's going to be a Pro Bowl player almost immediately. And that's not Cleveland Farrell. And it's not, it wasn't, it really wasn't fair to him to take him that high because, you know, his ceiling was a lot lower than somebody that you would take at that point. So enough of Cleveland Farrell. I guess my point is this is now that Mayock is the 51% guy. It's almost, pardon the pun, but a silver lining here to Gruden's mess is that now Mike Mayock has a golden opportunity to make a case, one, to save his job, two, put a stamp on this franchise. They made the move to Las Vegas. That was a huge deal. Brand new stadium, the whole thing. Mark Davis kind of muddling his way through this just this mire of just uncertainty with Oakland and everything else. But somehow they got it done. They got to Vegas, got their their stadium. Now Mayock, let's see, you know, some of the changes they make. Is he going to get the 51% call on the new head coach? Who's going to emerge? You know, I don't know that Rich Bisaccia, we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously, it's only been one week. We've got a lot of season to go. He may prove himself to be a candidate. Ultimately, I think they'll probably swing the, for the fences as far as coaches go. You know, again, Mike Mayock has a chance because, like you said, we had talked about it. He probably was going to be fired at the end of this season if Gruden is still there. Mayock would be the fall guy for any unsuccessful uh, attempt to make the playoffs and that, you know, it was his drafts and we're, we're just in trouble and you know, all this other stuff. And, and Gruden is like Davis's kid. And just bottom line, Mayock gets a second opportunity. And really, it's a first opportunity to be the guy in charge. And so far, so good. They won their first game. So let's see. The other thing is, have you been surprised that Davis really hasn't come out and spoken on this? They give him the, the one 
credit for the no comment, but then he comments and says, ask the NFL. They have all the answers. But he's kind of left Mayock and the coach out there to just kind of handle all the slings and arrows from the from the press on this thing. Well, you mentioned it last week. I mean, it wasn't his call. The NFL pressured him to, to fire John Cruden, so it's no surprise that he didn't want to do this, but he was pressured yeah. into it. So you know that he's not happy, and he's not going to be commenting. I'm just curious. You talked about who the new head coach might be. Do you think they go with another young, like, offensive or defensive coordinator like the next, you know, John Gruden? Or do you think, considering all the mess that has come out in the past couple of weeks, do you think that they'll swing for the fences and bring in a minority head coach, maybe like an African-American? I don't know Mike Mayock, but just the sense I get, I mean, he is certainly an old school guy. Not that he's going to bring in a taskmaster or somebody that's you know just there to crack the whip. So I think there's going to be some mix of that. I'm sure they will talk to some candidates, and if one of the younger guys blows them away, but I think his first choice would be somebody a little bit more seasoned, has been around the block, and would be the ultimate person that's going to hold everybody accountable, including themselves. No skeletons in the closet hold the team accountable, kind of manage the situation as best they can, but to let you know the other coaches coach and not be the ego that's running the team, just kind of that CEO-type coach. So I think that's kind of the route that he'll go, again, if he has the full say on it. Eric B. Enemy, Lou? You know, I, I would think EB has got to be on on top. I mean, if there's going to be a list, then there's going to be a list for sure at the end of this season. I'd love to see him get a head coaching job. You know, would he go in division and go head-to-head against the Chiefs twice a year? I mean, I don't think that would be his first choice. But if he gets offered, he's got to take it because nobody else will offer him a job, which is still a mystery. But I think he would be that guy that would run the ship, and he's a no-nonsense, not going to be in-your-face type of guy, but he is a no-nonsense guy. Uh, We're going to work. We're going to let the chips fall where they may. If you ever watch any of his press conferences, you know where he stands on things. And, uh, yeah, I think he'd be a great candidate for this team. Let's go ahead and bring in our second guest. He's a starting quarterback at Brown University, the Bears, pride of Andover, Mass. Number four, E.J. Perry. E.J., welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. Okay, great. Uh, We'll get right into it here. We'll bounce around a little bit. But uh, first off, just as as current as we can get, teams one and four right now. But you personally, and I think the offense in general, is putting up big numbers. You just had five touchdown passes against Princeton over the weekend. Uh, You're averaging 340-yard game, you know, a bunch of touchdowns, even though you're one and four. What are the positives you're taking from uh, your senior season so far? Yeah, there's been a, a tremendous amount of improvement. Uh, week to week, we face some really good opponents, some tough opponents who have had really good starts to their season. Each week, we've gotten better, and um, we're hoping to continue that and uh, finish this year uh, very strong. Well, you have five games left on the schedule. What are the keys to turning this season around? Yeah, one of the things that has made a dramatic impact for our offense is at the beginning of the year, there was times where we, you know, the whole fundamental of our offense is built around 
playing with tempo and and we lost a little bit of that at the beginning of the year and and got slowed down with uh execution things on getting lined up getting set and just urgency in general and you know we really turned that that around in the second half of the Bryant game and it, it showed and then it played out in Colgate and Princeton as well on the offensive side of the ball you know now the defense is as well they, they did a really good job of playing with tempo in the Colgate game and causing turnovers uh, which they had two of and a bunch of different stops and they're going to continue to do that as well and, and really emphasize that. Tell us about the Princeton game the most recent game it was a shootout. You know we came out and uh we had our first two drives stumbled a little bit. We had a, we had a penalty and a sack, which um, caused us to get off schedule a little bit. And um, after that, the offense found its rhythm, and and we found ourselves in a like you said a tight one. And in the second half, you know Princeton's a tremendous team, and and they showed that, and uh, they got ahead by three scores. But our defense made a really good play and had a defensive touchdown in the second half of the third quarter. It uh, eventually. You know, we weren't able to keep up in the uh, the game went Princeton's way, but they were a tremendous team, and, and we have a lot of uh, good things to take from that and a lot of things that which we have done all season is uh, to really make corrections and, and get better this whole week of practice. You mentioned the up-tempo. You guys do throw it some, <laughs> a little bit more than some. How much flexibility, EJ, do you have at the line of scrimmage with audibles and you know how you guys get your play calls? Yeah, one of the things about being up-tempo, and especially as we, we've seen that we play so much better playing fast, is that a lot of the you know typical audibles and checks and uh, different things of that matter that you'd see in a pro-style offense that you know I've, I've been in the past is built into our playbook uh, in terms of post-snap reads or on the fly, you know, protecting different plays and doing things that way. So there's not a whole lot of at the line communication. We do have certain plays that uh, we do it with, but uh, for the most part, we're working post snap with all of our information and and protecting different plays with that aspect because we want to play fast and snap the ball as fast as we can. Which do you prefer? You said you played in kind of a pro style before and versus this. I mean, is there a preference for you? You know, as a, as a quarterback, you just want to execute the offense at hand. Obviously it's been fun to to play in this offense and learn in this offense and there's definitely elements of this offense that are uh, enjoyable for an offensive player whether you're the quarterback receiver offensive lineman running back you know you get to run a whole bunch of plays you get to have a lot of freedom and the ball in your hands and open space a ton but as a quarterback you want to execute the offense at hand and, and help your team win the game and that's that's your job. All right, let's change gears a little bit because I think a lot of our listeners really aren't that familiar with Ivy League football. If you could kind of describe the atmosphere, whether it's the crowd, students, you know, what it's like on campus during game week, maybe give us some just some hints. Yeah, there's um, a tremendous, tremendous tradition in the Ivy League. You really see that with Ivy League games and Ivy League matchups and which we've had two of so far. And the other aspect is our schedule is very regional. So we get these crowds that away and home crowd are big at almost all games, which is unique, I think, to college football. If you look around FBS football, definitely it's the home crowd dominates. And when you look at our Harvard game, which we played week two at Harvard, uh, you know, there's 21,000 people there. And it was, you know, probably a 60-40 split 
it is something that's really cool aspect about it. And there's a big tradition, you know, the morning of the games, you'll see the opposing team's band on your main green and uh, playing their, their songs. And, and there's a, uh, we play all our games at 1230 and it, it's a cool atmosphere and it's, it's a really cool tradition. And there's a lot of people that, you know, really pull for us and support us, which is awesome. Now you were at BC for a bit. How does that compare to an ACC matchup or just a BC uh, independent game? Yeah. Like I said, you know, the biggest difference is when you go and you play Miami, there's not a lot of Boston fans in Miami, you know, or you go and play Florida state. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, Boston college fans in the stands at, at a Florida state game where when you drive up 45 minutes to go play Harvard, you know, you feel that energy in the stadium where you're going back and forth and, even, um, you know, a lot of these games, Yale is only two hours. Uh, Dartmouth is only two hours. So there's a lot of these regional matchups that you get to play in. And, and it's um, it's a very cool experience. And, you know, people support Ivy League football really well. And it's something that, you know, we're grateful for and we get excited for every week. What are your earliest memories of playing the game? Obviously, I mean, I started watching football as early as my first memories. Uh, there's a there's a picture of me at a Brown University tailgate watching my uncle uh, play for the team when I was two years old. Um, I started playing when I was nine, which was, you know, in the town youth league and with a bunch of my friends who I ended up playing uh, high school football with, you know, so that it was a really cool experience there. And uh, I've enjoyed the game since then and until now. Have you always been a quarterback, EJ, from day one when you started playing football? I played uh, a bunch of different positions in youth football, uh, receiver, running back, uh, linebacker, safety. And even in high school, you know, my freshman year, I played uh, receiver. And uh, throughout high school, I played safety and corner. You know, I've done a few different things there. But throughout youth football, I also played quarterback. And in high school, I obviously played quarterback. Obviously, you got a, a lot of mobility. It's hard not to notice that you're a pretty athletic guy. Uh, where does that come from? Is that just a, a family trait? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, my uncles were all great athletes, and um, my father as well. He'll be mad if I don't include him. You know, I grew up playing uh, basketball and baseball, and, uh, you know, that was just something that was traditional on both sides of my family. Everyone, you know, played sports. And when you were at Thanksgiving, everyone was outside, uh, you know, playing a family game of pickup basketball. So you had to run around to uh, compete with uh, your cousins and, and uncles and whatnot. So I think I just, uh, you know, picked up and built on it from there. And that's just, you know, something that throughout, you know, growing up has come to be. So out of high school, Lou already mentioned you signed with Boston College. What were the reasons you chose to stay home and, and play for the Eagles? You know, on my mom's side of the family, there's a bunch of legacies. My mother went to Boston College. Uh, I grew up watching Boston College football, the days of Matt Ryan, which was obviously phenomenal. And my mom was at Boston College during the Flutie days. and My grandfather went there and a bunch of my aunts and uncles had attended there. So I had, I was very familiar with the school. It was ACC football. It was an unbelievable opportunity that coach Adazio had given me to uh, play at the highest level of college football. And, you know, I was really excited and fortunate and grateful for that opportunity. Why did you eventually transfer to Brown? What were the reasons behind that transfer? During my first two years there, I had, you know, played in both 
uh, years and, uh, you know, only had two years left of eligibility. And the starting quarterback at the time was uh, Anthony Brown, who I had the same amount of eligibility left. And uh, it basically came down to I wanted to play. And uh, when I decided to transfer, uh, Brown gave me the opportunity to play great football and get a great education. And that's where I ended up. Your first season at Brown was in 2019. You took the Ivy League by storm. I mean, you put up some huge numbers there. What do you think was the biggest difference for you that year? I think the team had an unbelievable uh, job of picking up in a short amount of time Coach Perry's system, and I had a tremendous amount of talent around me, guys who, you know, loved football, loved Brown University, fought to the bitter end uh, in every single game that we played in that year. And, you know, that similar to this year, we got better every single game, and we really finished um, – strong and and you know we look back and we, we always think we should have won more games than we did but you know there was a lot of really good players that we had on the team and uh it was a really fun season in, in terms of getting the ball to those guys and watching them make plays last year ivy league canceled its football season how difficult was it to watch other conferences play football while you you sat on the couch on saturday and how did you occupy your time you know that was definitely difficult. Anytime you're spectating it as a as a competitor and as a player uh, is difficult. You know there was a group of us. Uh, I think it was nine or ten of us who decided to take the semester off, and we all would carpool together and work out every morning at six a.m. five days a week at a local place around Providence. It really felt like every single day, you know, waking up and going with these guys that. Uh, we were working towards something and and even though it stung to watch other people that um, we were going to get our opportunity eventually. And we have this year and we're hoping to make the most of these last five games. How do you think you improved during this off season training when the season wasn't played? Where do you think you improved? Here at Brown, we, we split the year into four different quarters obviously the season is when you want to compete and uh lay everything out on the line but the other three is is a big time to get bigger and faster and stronger and and uh learn the offense better defense uh whichever side of the ball you're on so we just got you know four extra quarters of getting bigger faster stronger and learning our offense better and we tried to take advantage of that the best we could even when times were limited in terms of gym space or whatever the case may be, you know, we figured out a way in order to get better. And uh, we had to stay sharp because we knew our time was coming. And even though it felt like it was a long time away, it comes fast. And, and here we are halfway through the season. Have you ever run the 40? Because you look like you're one of the fastest guys on the offensive side of the ball. I've run it in the past in the, the low four or fives uh, range and, I have not run one in the last six months or so. I don't know where I'd be at if I ran one today. You're faster than some wide receivers and running backs that play in the in the Ivy League. Yeah, I think um, you know definitely running hard is is the biggest thing, and uh, all the guys on our team do that, and that's that's one of the things that drives our offense and the mentality is uh, knifing the football and getting yards every play. You talked about your family, EJ, and I guess we full disclosure, I mean, your dad was your high school coach. Your uncle now is your college coach. What's that been like? Yeah, everyone asks. They ask, um, what's it like playing for your uncle? 
or they say, is it hard playing for your uncle? And I say, uh, no, because I had a tune-up playing for my dad, which is much harder. <laughs> so it's um, I cherish both the experiences. Uh, you know, playing for my dad was one of the most amazing things ever, and uh, he helped me uh, become a, an unbelievable player and, and uh, person. And um, he does a lot for his players, and I really uh, appreciated playing for him. And, and especially looking back on it now, and in the moment I did as well, but even more so now in those those memories we have and it's the same playing for my uncle and and getting to you know even the little things you know seeing my cousins at practice and uh getting to see them uh you know during the week and at game day is is something that's uh awesome yeah i would imagine your family's quite proud of all of you and especially since you're all doing it together if you were to maybe break it down a little bit i mean the similarities between now you're obviously your dad and your uncle they're they're brothers same side of the family okay so we'll just full disclosure there what are their similarities and differences if you looked at say philosophy scheme their demeanor those types of things yeah my dad when i was in high school we we also played up tempo they both like points they both want to score a lot of points they both want to get the ball in the end zone. And, um, you know, other than that, you know, it's different offenses in terms of X's and O's and the plays we ran. But the biggest similarity is uh, they both play with tempo and, and they want to push the tempo. And, you know, when I was in high school playing for my dad, that's that's how we ran the offense. And obviously that's how we're, we're taught to run the offense here. And in terms of demeanor, are they similar? Or one a little bit more fiery than the other? Or what's your assessment as far as that part of it goes? They're um, similar in, in, in the fact that they, they both really want to win. They're both really competitive, and they're, um, they do everything they can to, to put their players in a, in a great position to win. Now, if you have a disagreement or have had a disagreement with either one of them regarding scheme or play calls and so forth, is that a good conversation to have, or does it get a little touchy? No, you know, I've never really been the one to disagree. You're job as a player is to run the play called and to execute uh what's at hand and, and that's not really your place to have an opinion on play or or whatever the matter is and, and there's times and whatnot where during the week or you get asked about a certain play or a certain thing and, and you offer your insight or what you think or your comfortability with running it but um when it's game day or whatever the case may be you, your whole mind body and and focus is on running the play that gets sent in and signaled in and uh, running it to the best ability that you have. Can you recall the last time the three of you were together just talking about football and maybe how that went? Well, growing up, my other uncle was also a long-time coach um, and still is. That He's currently at Rutgers, but he coached in the Ivy for a long time and at the Houston Texans most previously. But, you know, Thanksgivings were always a time when um, – you know, the season ended, you know, we'd go and watch when I was in seventh and eighth grade, my dad who had a Thanksgiving game and then everyone would be back at the house and uh, it'd be a big deliberation on, on the play calls that my dad made and, and whatnot, you know, from the insights of my uncles. So it's fun to watch and listen. It's a fun experience. And as much as there's stuff to cheer and, uh, you know, hate on what goes on in the game day. There's also some stuff to laugh at. So, uh, you know, it always made for great conversation uh, at Thanksgiving. Let's put you under the scouting microscope here. What do you think is your biggest strength as a player? And what area of your game do you think you still need to work on? You know, I think the biggest strength is 
you know, recognizing that every day in practice you need to get better and, and that plays into the biggest weaknesses, you know, everything you get better at. And, you know, the biggest thing this off season that I was trying to improve is um, accuracy and specifically accuracy on the, the sideline throws, which I struggled with at times last year. And, uh, you know, when, when we did our analysis at the end of the year, that was one of my lower areas. So that was a big emphasis over the off season. And, you know, in the middle of the season, I'm focused on executing the plays that, that come in and after, and, you know, there's obviously, you know, a, a thing that we're trying to do better is third and long situations. As I move on that, even the things I'm good at, uh, I can still get better at and still improve on. And especially if I want to continue to play for a long time at the next level, if you look at guys like who succeed at the next level, they're all people who continuously strive to get better no matter how good they are. Last one, for those that maybe haven't seen you play or are, are interested in your opinion, which current or former NFL QB does your game most resemble? Uh, that's a good one. It would be a, a more mobile quarterback, um, like you mentioned, You know, which there are a plethora of them in the NFL today. I always was a huge fan, obviously, being in New England of, of Tom Brady, but watching – uh, football and trying to mirror uh, with a guy like Russell Wilson, I guess that I guess you could say, but you know, there's never a true perfect comparison or anyone, especially when you're talking about these unbelievable NFL starters who are franchise type guys who are winning Super Bowls. You know, you only strive to be as good as them. You don't want to compare yourself. All right, EJ, here's the opportunity to, if you want to plug anything, give out your uh, Twitter, Instagram handles. I'm not too big on social media, but um, we play on ESPN Plus. So if anyone wants to uh, check out the Brown Bears the rest of the season, we play Cornell this week. And, you know, hopefully I know Tuesday's practice will be a war and uh, we're going to be getting ready to play them this week. There you have it, gang. The quarterback at Brown, EJ Perry. Thanks for coming on, EJ. Thank you. So the pick segment. God, this is getting ugly. I'm looking at these situations. I'm looking at the games that are covering and so forth. And I came up with this analogy, Alex, and you tell me if it bears out. It seems like these guys that are like red hot with their picks are just basically taking the layups. And somehow I find that I'm taking contested three-pointers on every game. And I'm not really sure why, but what do you think of that analogy? I think that's a good analogy. Just look at the team that that's doing really bad or or a team that's hot right now. Just go with them and, and take it. Like that pick with the Chargers and the Ravens where you pick the Chargers and they're going on the yes. road all the way to the East Coast. That's not you, Lou. That's my theory. That's one of my betting axioms is to bet against that team. And, you know, because I'm not doing so well, I start getting a little not so disciplined. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I guess I've been at this so long that you start second guessing some of the things that are right in your face. So this week's games will look more like, you know, at this as we look on Tuesday. I don't know, you know, injury wise, it's getting tougher to pick the games earlier in the week, but that's no excuse. Uh, but I've got some potential layups here. Who did you have last week? Who was your lock? All right, my lock of the week did not cover, even though they came back and forced the game into overtime. It was the Carolina Panthers versus the Vikings. 
The Vikings won the game in overtime. I was happy that Sam Darnold was able to steer the ship, drive them, convert that two-point conversion. That the was two like two-point conversion. And I was like, yeah. the Vikings missed the field goal again. Yes, it's the same old Vikings. But in the end, it didn't matter. I mean, they went for the touchdown and converted and scored. So that was a bummer. But my lock of the week this week, I'm going to go back to the Carolina Panthers, okay? Oh my goodness! I'm a stubborn I think we're man. I think we're both Carolina Panthers drunk because that was one of my losers as well. I'm a stubborn man, Lou, but I'm just looking at who they're playing. They're playing against the Giants. I realize that it's on the road, but Daniel Jones is coming off three interceptions on Sunday against the Rams, and just the Giants are a mess. They don't have Sa- Saquon Barkley. They don't have some of those wide receivers. It's been a tough season for them. Even though the Panthers started off 3-0 and and they've lost three games in a row, so they're sitting not so pretty right now at 3-3, and I still think that defense is going to get it done, even without Christian McCaffrey. I've got the Panthers. They're minus three. I think they cover. So that's my lock of the week again, and hopefully they'll, they'll deliver for me. Well, Stephon Gilmore is... Uh eligible to come off the PUP list, but uh, he hasn't played in uh, such a long time. So it may be a while until they get him indoctrinated in that defense. But I'm sure, you know, if he's in condition, they'll uh, they'll get him some snaps. Yeah, Carolina, <laughs> we've had the best of times the first few weeks and the worst of times the last few. Anyway, the potential layups this week, and again, it scares me to death, but I'm going to take New England minus seven against the Jets. Uh, these are all home teams, all home favorites. So again, potential layups. The Raiders minus three at home against Philadelphia. God, this is again going against one of my axioms. The the Rams are laying 15 against Detroit. You know, <laughs> Staff, I don't know if Stafford really has an axe to grind with Detroit. But Jared Goff is going to want to prove the Rams wrong here. And I think he's just going to fall on his face. So, again, I'll give the 15. which I really don't want to do that. And then finally, I'm going to take San Francisco. I'm going to live and die with the Niners. They're coming off a bye. They're playing the Colts. It's into Santa Clara. They're three-and-a-half-point favorites. Colts beat Houston last week. I don't know how much credence you can put into them for that. But uh, those are my four. So, uh, Alex, go ahead. Have at it. I'm with you on all the picks except the Rams. I mean, to cover double digits that high, I mean, 15, I don't know. I mean, the Lions, have they've had some bad luck here lately. They've been close in a lot of games. And I just think Goff has a an axe to grind. I'm not saying the Lions are going to win, but I think they're going to cover. His coach did call him out a bit in the press conference, so that's not something that you typically see, but uh, he mentioned him, and he, and he threw in everybody else has to play better too, but gave it some serious thought because the question was raised, and, and he just kind of, it's almost like he pawed, like he was having a stroke. <laughs> it was just the presser was dead silent for about 15 seconds. And then he was like, want to measure his words, I think. But then he kind of said that, you know, we're really looking for him to play better, to step up and really raise the level of everybody's game. And everybody has to play better. Anyway, yeah, I just think it's going to be a mess. And uh, the Rams take care of business. So that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Forgot to mention it at the top, but please look at the, the subscribe button. Please give that a hit. Jump in through Apple Podcasts, 
through Spotify, iHeartRadio. You'll see all the selections there, but uh, it would certainly help us out. And also, we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes moving forward. So, thanks to our guests. For Alex, I'm Lou. On the way out. Peace.